Welcome to episode number 85 of Off the Shelf. In the summer of 1962, about 60 members of several large extended families moved across the U.S. seeking a place away from the world to wait for the rapture. They were driven by William Branham's comments that the rapture was at hand. They settled in the Pine Lawn Trailer Park in Prescott, Arizona. They were led by William Branham's tape boys, Leo Mercer and Gene Goad, who had been close friends since college. Ed Dalton asked William Branham whether they should move to the park, and the response at first was that they shouldn't go. He later changed his mind and said that they should go. I see it coming out all right in the end, was what William Branham told to Ed Dalton. This episode continues our interview with Deb Dalton Thibodeau, the youngest daughter of Ed Dalton. Her story is chronicled in The Serpent's Tale, which Deb has authored. The book is available from Adelaide Books and on Amazon. If William Brennan was a prophet, how could he promote a sexual predator and abuser of young children to the position pastoral authority at the park. Where was his discernment? How could he describe the physical, emotional, psychological, and sexual abuse of children as something that comes out all right in the end? Why did Ed Dalton say just before he died, he lied to me. Brother Branham lied to me. I've been betrayed. So, Deb, you were serially abused. There was physical abuse. Uh, your book is filled with words like whippings, beatings, strappings. Leo was a monster. He was clearly the ringleader in the abuse. But there appear to be a, a lot of others that participated as well. And I think it was chapter 29 you wrote in your book. Every morning before school, a different brother showed up to administer a beating. How many people participated in, in this abuse? It was, it, was, it was our modus operandi. It's how it worked. Children were given up. And I have for years wondered how this could happen. But our parents were able to set aside that mantle of protection and give us up into the good of the commune to make us better people. Uh, this is my question and will continue to be, what were they trying to do? Because I was a child, I was sinless. But in trying to make me sinless, they made me a sinner. They made me a liar. They made me a sneak. Um, I wasn't a natural liar. I would say what was in my mind and I would say it with all I was worth. I, I have written in my book how at, at just barely two years old, I had, I had a, a good vocabulary. I, I was always in front of my sister. We were always in the same space, but she, was, she would be behind me and I would speak for her. But I, somebody asked me, oh, you must be one of the, are you one of those Dalton twins? And I said, I am not a Dalton, I am a Christian. Because that was the essence of my childhood. 
my family name was not important. My status as a Christian was. And so that was emphatically placed in my mind by the time I was two years old. So when, when everyone in there is basically of like mind and they say, these are the things that we're going to do, but we're going to give the power to this one leader, Leo Mercier, that means we are going to take direction from him. And every adult was culpable as far as I'm concerned. And he would tell people, you beat this person. He would designate people to go and shoot somebody's dog or beat somebody. He would call them to the office and have them beat. Sometimes we didn't even know what we were getting a beating for. We were just there getting the beating. Just time to get your beating. It was, yeah. And, and it could come out of the blue. We didn't know when it was going to happen. When Esther and I were littler, um, the really the really bad beatings didn't start until we were after until after we were about six years old and the first really terrible beating we got is when he sent men to kill our little dog and that changed my entire paradigm and they cut our hair off and by now i've lived for six years in an environment where I have heard every day of my life, if you cut your hair off, you are an abomination. If and, you're and they woman, cut your hair because of some perceived thing you did wrong as a, how old were you, six, seven years old? Or six. They six said, years old. They said that we teased our dog and pulled his tail, and that is why he bit our little neighbor, our little companion. She came over to play, little dog bit her. And I don't know why he bit her. It was children and a dog. You know, we were, we were children. If we were six, she was probably five or, or younger. And, and was this dog a puppy at the time? He was, he was not a puppy. He, it was probably okay. between a year or two years old. Yeah. Um, but he was just there was so much joy in owning that dog and in being part of that that little dog. And of course, every dog that we had after Daddy met William Branham was named Fritz. So this little dog was named Fritz. And we just played with him. We played with him in the yard. He was always out there with us and our little neighbor came over and he bit her. And the next thing I knew, we were getting our hair cut off and, and he made my mother and my brother he sent my dad to tell my mother he was going to cut our hair off. They stood us in, they stood us up, my mom and my brother brushed our hair out and they let him cut our hair off. My parents let him cut our hair off. How, how short did they cut it? They just jagged it off above our ears. Wow. You know, it wasn't like the, the hair cutting I got later in life, but and, and this was this was after they shot your dog in front of you. This was after they shot the dog. And that that was probably my first experience with just seeing something die, you know, just animation gone, just a, a happy dog turned into meat. And it's a it's a crushing thing for children to experience, especially when their hearts are so new and young and full of love for something as simple as a puppy. 
And this was when I understood that my parents were not in control. My parents were doing what they were told. And my mother, no matter how much she resisted, was always brought into line. And, and the beatings got so bad that I think you relate in your book that you were uh, lashed 150 times once. I've described that. That was the worst beating I ever got in there. And there's probably 40 kids who were in that same room and got those same beatings. And, and I mean, I mean, it's, it's bizarre because actually the Bible says that you can't get more than 39 lashes at one time. So these guys are basically throwing out the Bible and they just said, okay, we're going to beat these kids and beat them um, beyond their ability to endure it. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre. Well, and I don't know how, how anyone, if anyone can relate to getting 30, 30 swats with a leather belt and the absolute agony of that and the days of bruises and and it was it was part of our lives it's how we lived and mother mother was just our mama was just broken by it she would cry she would put us in a tub with epsom salts and she would dip water and she would cry but she couldn't change it and there were times when I don't even know if they knew we were being summoned for a beating. But the beating that I describe, the significant beating that I describe in the book, I only told my own story, but there were 40 other kids there who endured the same thing that day. Who, who all got beat. Um, uh, yeah, including the one who got his head put through the wall. Um, you, 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 when you have been hit 25 or 30 times with a leather belt, you can't feel anything but the fire yeah. unless they hit a new spot. And if they hit a new spot, the agony is then just multiplied by 10, 20, 100, you know, so. And, and they invented ways to make it hurt as much as possible. Well, they invented ways to keep us in position so they could do it. And this was one of the things that we watched happen you know, kids, and we were embarrassed for each other when a whipping would start and you would jump and you would squirm and you would put your hands back and you try to get out of the way. So we were all embarrassed for each other watching us trying to do what any kid would try to do, get away from a beating. So they, they took one of those metal folding chairs you can see anywhere in the world today. We had lots of them and they pushed that against the wall and the kids bent over that chair while two men beat them to get there because how do you administer 50 to 150 swats to 40 kids without being absolutely worn out you can't so they so would take turns they would just both whip you at the same time all oh, alternating wow. spots but if you didn't hold yourself on that chair it would start over wow. so we saw that evolution in beatings and now understood that there was like, there's no end, you know, they can do whatever they want. So most of the adult men in the park participated in these. It was, it was what they did. You know, I know who my own personal abusers are, um, but it could be, 
he did things on whims it seems like many times he would he would uh, i'm remembering a day when he had all the men he he had the men all go home and slap their wives you know just slap, go home and slap their wives in the face to remind them that they were women <laughs> and and they did it oh, of course they did it you know, it, they were already indoctrinated to. And so this is this is the confusion for the children of the park who are now adults. Like I said, I'm 60. And this happened between 6 and 14, the worst of it. Yeah. So my entire life has been a set of questions. How could anyone let let someone tell them that this is okay? Well, it's, it, this goes to the heart of what's wrong with some of what's wrong with the message, because I mean, as a father myself, I don't understand how someone would allow anyone else to discipline their kids. I mean, as I've got four kids and when our kids were small, if someone tried to discipline them, um, they suffered my wrath or my wife's wrath, but uh, I, and this is obviously because William Branham had basically anointed Leo Mercier as the leader. And so because of that, they felt the same kind of allegiance to Leo Mercier as to William Branham because of what William Branham had said. I absolutely believe that. I've kind of alluded in my book to the idea that their personal discernment was usurped. Their own inclinations were overridden by William Branham because by, he had to be right by Leo Mercier because he was endorsed by William Branham and William Branham couldn't be wrong couldn't be wrong so this was the part that and I I have written my book at a point in time when I was still living with Herb and Grace Lott who were wonderful to me the most wonderful people and probably saved me at some point but still they, when I had to walk down for a beating, I had to walk down for a beating. It was, that was the way. So, did, so did he... I, in oh, my go own, ahead, go ahead, sorry. In my own heart at that time, this is when I feel like I was just filling with frustration and venom. And I said to myself as a child, this will never happen if I have children. If I have children, I will burn in hell with them before I will let someone take them from me and abuse them. And that is how my mind was conditioned. That if I didn't allow the servant of the Lord or the prophet of the end times to dictate how I treated my kids, that hell was where I was going. Wow. I mean, it's really, it's, it's interesting because in, in, in uh, Ephesians 6, 4, and in Colossians 3, 21, uh, Paul says, you know, uh, I think the King James is don't provoke your children to wrath. But what it's talking about is don't make your children frustrated. Don't, um, don't do the stuff that, in fact, what your father allowed to have happened to you. It just don't do that. And so again, the Bible takes the backseat to the message. Because William Branham, they would say, oh, the Bible is our absolute. But it's not when you ignore it because of things that William Branham said. I believe that. And my father 
was a man among men, but the stories that, you know, you have to understand that everything and I heard about our life before the park was all anecdotes and stories, but my dad was a man, a leader of men. Uh, he wasn't afraid to do anything. He, he flew his own plane. He was, he was a mechanic. He, he, he once was deputized by the local sheriff in the town when people stole, uh, stole car parts from him and he went and got them back. He wasn't afraid of anything. So this is the man that I, I grew up hearing about and the, the man that I so wanted to see and the man that I believed would, would protect me. And of course, my greatest heartache and the thing that hurts me to my core more than almost anything I've experienced in my life is when he turned his face from me in Leo Mercier's bathroom. Leo Mercier was, uh, he, he was a sick, sick man. And I don't know what it was about that bathroom. I've described it in my book. He had an all brown bathroom, a brown toilet. I had never seen a brown bathroom. I'd never seen a bathroom that nice, frankly. But he would sit on that toilet and he would chastise and rebuke and make you say you had done things you hadn't done. And if you didn't say it, you were going to suffer. And as a child, it took me longer to figure that out than most kids. Um, that if you don't agree with him, you're going to pay. And I don't know what, what that difference is in some kids' brains. You know, I, I became a very concrete person because of that. Well, I, I think in your book, yeah, you talk about how you didn't realize that the other kids were lying. And if you didn't lie, you were just going to make things worse. So you started lying just to protect yourself. I, to this day, don't know why I would lie about the things I lied about. I, I, I totally believe that I was not an inherent liar, that what I wanted to say, I would say. So I became so afraid of consequences that I would lie because I was afraid. And then that lie would grow. And I was a kid with a good brain and uh, I was precocious. I would embellish, I would, I would make it bigger. And this is what I did when I talk about um, telling a lie in second grade that, mm -hmm. that put the whole park in a frenzy. And this was very hard for me to tell because it was, it was nasty. And I have, I have, it took me until I was an adult to forgive myself for that lie. Because I feel, and I named that chapter projection and opprobium, because I believe what I did is I projected what I had experienced on someone who had no value to me, the school janitor. And I don't know what any child is doing when they do something like that, other than to say, help me. Yeah. Um, needless to say, that was not the outcome. Uh, and I was then labeled as a liar. And that just eventually led into being able to also la label me as a deviant and call me a sexual predator at nine years old. That it, it is so bizarre. Talking about. 
Yeah. Did did any of the kids um, ever try to run away from this abuse? My one of my nieces tried several times to run away. And they always brought her back. They caught her and 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 obviously back then probably law enforcement wasn't as in tune to what's going on. Well, and I've, I've mentioned that in my book. Yeah. My mother couldn't drive a car. And they were living on an income dad made at the county garage, which I think was like $3.70 an hour, something like that. There was no place to go untethered from husband, from father, from income. You just had to get through it. There wasn't women's shelters. There wasn't, it just wasn't a time in life where people recognized that need. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so my mother was trapped there. She was absolutely trapped and they they did throw her out once and she went back to Kentucky and stayed there for several weeks and ultimately decided to come back and just endure but what they did to her after that was take her children from her and keep her drugged she was drugged on Valium for the last seven years we were in there wow because hey, that's it's really interesting to note because you talk about in in your book how Leo Mercier was obviously uh, well into substance abuse, not just alcohol, but also I don't know if it was morphine or or some kind of opiate. And it's interesting to note First Corinthians five eleven to twelve tells us that we have nothing to do with evil men, right? And he's clearly evil, but evil and William Branham's comment basically absolved him from all evil it sounds like people wouldn't even make note of the evil they knew something was going on they knew it was wrong but they just kind of turned their head and 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 didn't didn't uh take it to its logical conclusion I will never understand but this is and and the first time I saw this reverence if we go back to the point in time in when William Branham visited the park I saw the way he was revered by the people, my own mother and my own father. We lined up on either side of the park when they drove out of the park and, and the folks were all singing till we meet again. It was reverent, it was incandescent, it was beautiful. Uh, my father had tears on his face. I could see that they absolutely revered this man. And so this very revered man who says to them, go on, I see it all coming out okay. So my entire adult life was spent asking myself, wanting to ask my father, what you are telling me and asking me to believe is that everything that happened to me was meant to be that God said it was okay to do these terrible things to me as a child because William Branham said, go on, I see it coming out okay. So we've talked about physical abuse, a bit about psychological and emotional abuse, which you, you talk about in your book as well. And I'm, 
I'm certainly not an expert on the subject, but I do understand from what I've read that psychological and emotional pain is far worse than physical pain because it damages self-esteem. It, it creates long-term mental health problems. How did that affect you as an adult years later? It has taken me most of my adult life to recognize how it affected me because this is what we do. We just move on. And if we're alive and we're breathing, we go on and we make our lives. But because of those wounds in our heart and our mind, and I've mentioned in my book how moral wounds never heal. They're always there and they're always fresh. And the memory of the beatings and the injuries, they are not, they did not hamper my life the way the words did. And so in my life, words have become a very valuable and very powerful thing. And so it is my desire above all else right now to use words to help people understand that children must not be ruined in their brains when they're little. When Leo Mercier called me a whore, a lesbian, a prostitute, a molester of little girls. These were words I didn't even know. You didn't I didn't know what know. they meant. I didn't know what they meant. I didn't know what a lesbian was. Well, he told me very graphically what a lesbian was. I've, I've written that in my book. But he said to me, you are serpent seed. You are the evil twin. And I have to get you away from your sister before you ruin her. You, so he hadn't heard of the promise <laughs> or he didn't believe not. it. Well, he didn't believe it, but he said, you, a, a good man will never want you. You will never give a man control over you. You will never allow a man. He, he demoralized me so completely as a child that I believe what I did and learned to do was insulate myself. And because that's the kind of brain I had, I made a safe place in my head. But there are times when I felt that slipping and I, this is the impact that I wanna make with some of my statements in the book. When I said, I will make my way with the God that I begged to spare my mind when I was 10, while my body was being abused and any faith I had was being ripped out of my heart. This is the impact I want to make. This is what we can do to our children if we're not careful. Yeah. And the first thing that you do to them is, is make them feel unworthy, worthless, dirty, wrong. Our children should be lifted up as the most beautiful thing in our life, the most incredible thing we can give our wisdom to so yes i found as an adult being in a product of the park made me very good at my job in the emergency department i i feel like i can only describe myself as somebody i had decreased empathy um I became very inflexible. I, and I think, I believe I've described this in this 
in my book how I would just probably can disassociate yourself yes and not disassociate to the point of another personality yeah but to disconnect Disconnect. Um, because I felt that that danger of disassociative identity when that beating started the really bad one because it was not me walking up there it was someone else it was some other little girl And that's the first time I felt that disassociative possibility. But oddly enough, I mean, I was being beaten the way a child should never be beaten. But what snapped me out of that was embarrassment. I was embarrassed for trying to get away from two grown men who were beating me and calling me a monkey because I jumped over the chair and hit the wall. I was so embarrassed by that, by the ridicule. So how does that happen? How does that happen that a child can be embarrassed by the ridicule and by how they appear in front of their peers, their, the other children, as being unable to take their beating? But that embarrassment snapped me out of that disassociation and I decided uh, they won't laugh at me anymore. How does that happen? to a child it's it's a mystery still but as an adult i can see how these things hurt my first marriage i can see how this dysfunction made me somebody who was utterly inflexible and in er it worked well i didn't have i wasn't broken by horrible events that happened i could move right on to the next trauma or the next horrible event and believe me i saw everything you can imagine in 30 plus years in the er and when i lost mom and dad it seemed like part of the course it was it was natural it's what should be happening my mother's death was beautiful my father's death was not but when esther died I felt something I had never felt before, and that was just a gripping, insane pain that she couldn't see her children finish their lives, that she wouldn't see her grandchildren grow up, that she wouldn't get to enjoy these things in her life that every person wants to enjoy. And believe me, I've seen enough death to understand that there are many people who miss those things, but Esther should not have been in that position. And it was also part of me. I was losing part of me. Yeah. So, but I recognized that the damage to her psyche was different than the damage to mine. She became very impulsive. I mean, whatever environment she was in, that's what she was doing. If she was in church, she was in church. If she was at a party, she was at a party. Um, You know, she was just, impulsive she made impulsive decisions i feel like her marriage was impulsive she didn't know the the man long enough to marry him so as you get older and you watch these kind of things happen and you see the differences in brains and i've watched this with all of my siblings i've watched how we have been psychologically changed by our childhood and the younger siblings you know we deal with that every day and it's just 
part of our lives. There's a part in your book where you get ripped out of your home and you're transplanted into a home of a couple that don't have kids, Herb and Grace. And it's like suddenly in this black and white, terrible environment, you get colored because these people put obviously put some love into your life. What happened to Herb and Grace? We don't want to spoil any, anything for people who haven't read the book yet, but it's it's just, it was a, a very interesting to me. I was kind of curious to say, okay, so what, this wonderful couple who you were, you spent you know, a year and a half, two years with, and you know, what ended up happening to them? That brings us to the end of this portion of our interview with Deb Thibodeau. If you have any questions, please go to the offtheshelf.life website. There is space for comments and questions at the bottom of each episode. I've asked Deb if she would answer any questions that our listeners might post. Or you can send me an email at rod at offtheshelf.life. Please let us know if there are any issues or questions that you think we should address or someone we should consider interviewing. Thank you very much for listening. And remember that God loves you and is not afraid of your questions. Have a great week.